Once again, good morning. We'll be looking at Revelation 3, 14. I hope you have enjoyed this uh, trip through these seven letters as much as I have. Um, Revelation is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And uh, though it's challenging and has many, many difficulties in it, I hope that this has, has whetted your appetite to dig into this, this book more. Uh, and I'm happy to recommend really great resources. But today we'll be looking at the seventh letter, that is the letter to Laodicea. So if you'll read with me, we'll look at Revelation three fourteen through 21. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Have you ever heard the saying that there's something lost in translation? Or perhaps you've heard of the Italian scholar who said that all translators are traitors. It's just a simple fact. If you know uh, more than one language, you've ever done any translation work, that you realize pretty quickly that every translation is an interpretation. Every translation has a little bit of, of bending, of, of trying to fit things. Uh, if you go too literal, you might leave people completely lost and confused. If you, if you go a little bit more loose and paraphrase, you, you might lose some of the original punch. Let me give you one example. In a common biblical phrase, or in biblical Hebrew, is the idiom that his nose burned. And the first couple of times you read that, you his nose burned? What are, what are you talking about? Uh, but you realize that it has been rightly translated. He became angry. Or he became furious. So even though that's a really good translation, you're still losing something of the literal. And that's actually something that our cartoons pick up really well. That's why in cartoons, you see, when they get mad, what happens? Their face turns red. His nose burnt. So there's always something lost in translation. And I bring this up because our passage for today has two very, very common phrases that have become famous in Christianese, which is the Christian language, our insider trading language, as it were. And that is, they have this particular meaning to many, many, many generations of Christians. But I'm going to propose that something has been lost in translation, that something's missing. And you see, the first and most important task of Bible study is to understand what did it mean to them back then. The passage cannot mean to us today what it never meant to them. So we have to do that historical work, and I hope you've appreciated that as we've gone through these letters, where we have sought to set them in their original, historic, first century context. Because if you miss that, you've missed the purpose, the aim of what the author was doing. Once we have that meaning for them back then, then we can go ahead and see how does it fit within the grand narrative of the Bible? And how does it apply to us today? So we will seek to set this letter to the church of Laodicea in its historical context this morning. We'll look at it under three points. So first, verses 15 through 18, lukewarm, poor, blind, and naked. That's the first point. And then verses 19 and 20, 
discipline and the door. And then finally, for those who conquer, verse 14, and then 21 and 22. So our first point then, lukewarm, poor, blind, and naked. Once again, let's look at verses 15 through 18. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See, unlike all the other letters, Laodicea receives no commendation. There's no hint. There's no leftover. There's no, I know some of you. It's just almost a double rebuke, basically. And so here in verse 15 and 16, we get a classic Christianese phrase, lukewarm. Down through the centuries, many, many, many Christians and Puritans and before them and after them have understood this phrase lukewarm to have concluded that it means just so-so. You know, instead of being burning hot on fire for the Lord, they're just lukewarm. They're so-so. I mean, there's even a youth workers conference called the Fire Conference, which pushes this idea of being hot, burning hot for the Lord. But did you notice what Jesus says? He says he specifically wishes that they were hot or cold. Would Jesus really say that? It's like, you know what? I wish that you were either really hot for me or that you were just ice cold and you hated me. But this lukewarm stuff, I'm just not having it. I mean, I just, the more you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. Imagine Jesus saying that, you know, I love those people who hate me, but the ones who are just eh about me, I'm not so much a fan. It just doesn't quite work. So let me set this in the historical context to explain why lukewarm doesn't mean what we have often thought it to mean. Laodicea was located in the Lycus Valley, which formed like a tri-cities. The three cities there were Laodicea, then Hierapolis, and Colossae. Hierapolis was famous because of these hot springs, like really hot springs in certain places. And you could go down and take the cure at the hot springs. You go in, my back was hurting a few weeks ago. I would have loved to have hot springs to go sit in, right? There's many things that hot springs can help you with physically. Colossae, on the other hand, was famous for its freshwater springs, cold, crisp water. But Laodicea had neither. Their only water source had to be piped in through an aqueduct. You can actually still go and see, see it. You can look up pictures online. And this aqueduct is a stone aqueduct, and it's full of just you know, sediment and, and uh, calcification. So Laodicea had horrible water that had to be piped in. And by the time it got there, whether it was piped in from the cold or piped in from the hot, it was lukewarm. But the point of the image then is this. In Hierapolis, you could go and you could take the cure. You could go and be refreshed in the hot springs. At Colossae, you could go and you could drink refreshing, cool water. But Laodicea, their water was useless. Cicero has said that they had the most disgusting water in the empire. Hence the reason it made you want to vomit. Notice, they are neither helpful and healing, nor cold and refreshing. So far from lukewarm being something less than on fire for Jesus, the point of the illustration is that Jesus finds them nauseating because they're useless. Their lack of use or their uselessness, you could say, is, is, seems to be connected to the fact that they are not witnessing, they're not evangelizing. They have no longer a light in that city. And we'll, as we'll see in our last point, Jesus describes himself as the faithful and true witness. So as every letter, the description of Jesus is, helps to set up a contrast in the church. And so it seems they have no use. They serve no light. They have no witness in that city. They have become useless and nauseating to the Lord 
because they become like their city, as we will see in a minute. But as a point of application, members of the gathering church, how is your witness? How is your evangelism? Who are those people in your life? I'm stating that as an assumption that you have people in your life that you're building relationships with, that you're praying for, that the Lord would reveal himself to them. One of the phrases I've learned at this church and, and have loved it and used it is living with the blinds open. I know during days of COVID that has been hard, but are we still seeking to do that, to live in such a way that we are being a light, that we are pressing on in our witness? We live in a very post-Christian culture, and so some of those relationships might take years and years and years to develop. But who are you building those relationships with? Are you faithfully praying for these people? Uh, recently, the elders were discussing this very thing. We, we long to see more conversions here at the gathering. We long to see this, our witness as a church result in not just transfer growth, but conversion growth. So let's press in on evangelism. Press in and praying for those who are lost, both personally and corporately. We'll consider that more in a minute as well. But we know that God is the one who saves, and yet he has made us to be witnesses and to, to shine a light in hopes of bringing people to Jesus, the light of the world. So how is our witness? So Jesus then grounds their uselessness, their lack of witness, in verses 17 and 18. It begins with four. He calls out the Laodiceans are just like their water. Again, they're mirroring their culture. They've become useless like their water was useless. And these are the reasons. You say I'm rich and prosperous and you have no need of anything. This church is clueless regarding their uselessness. They believe themselves to be doing quite well. And the reason is because they're evaluating themselves with these standards of the day and of their city. They, they're like their city. They're financially well off. They're comfortable. They're prosperous. They don't need anything, it seems. But as a matter of fact, because they don't need anything, it would seem they have no need for Jesus and no need to be a witness to Jesus. And this is a familiar reality in our own day. <clears throat> Many churches measure their success with secular measurements. I can't tell you how many church growth books and, and, and how to establish your church books there are out there that are based off of business strategies, that are based off of the best marketing techniques or the best leadership ideas. Not that we can't learn things from those. But friends, that's not the way Jesus says he's building his church. He says he will build his church. The local church who uses the culture's measuring sticks is bound to end up looking a lot like that surrounding culture. The Laodiceans believe themselves to be all these things because that's exactly what their city believed themselves to be. But Jesus says, based off his calculations, they are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And so he counsels them to buy gold and garments and eye salve. Now, first, this list seems really strange. Why, why that list? Why gold and garments and eye salve? Well, again, it's connected to the history of Laodicea. See, Laodicea was a banking center. They were famous for their gold coins. And they were also famous for breeding these special sheep, these jet black sheep. So instead of having to dye wool black, these sheep gave the dark black wool that was great for expensive and fine clothing. And they also were famous for a medical center, which had created its own eye salve. So once again, Jesus says, you become just like your culture in that you think you are thriving in these areas, and yet you have none of them. You need to buy those things from me. Jesus says, according to his measurement, where they think they're thriving is actually where they're lacking. So, with that in mind, they think they're materially rich, but they're really spiritually bankrupt. They think they're finally clothed, 
but they're spiritually naked and wretched. They think they see clearly enough to assess themselves, and Jesus says they're blind. So friends, I want to press this into our cultural moment in our situation. I don't know about you, but uh, I assume many of you are feeling similar that I am, that this year is just overwhelming. I'm burdened by so many things. When you think of COVID and not being able to meet together and much hypocrisy and who can meet and how can meet and the difficulties of just how those things press on you as you think through them. It's affected me in many ways that I haven't realized it. And it's caused me to see ever more clearly the need we have for each other, for ongoing discipleship and fellowship. But when you add to that, the recent events in the news around the country, the murder of George Floyd, which brings many reminders of, of other parts of our history in this country. And some of those realities have led to the response of some peaceful protests and also some riots and looting and destruction. Add to that, there's a reality that this is an election year. So everything is tinted, and I'd say tainted by, some ideological or politically supercharged statement. So how should Christians respond? What the letter to Laodicea would tell us is that the one thing we cannot do is we cannot use the the culture's measuring sticks to measure us. We cannot use their scales to determine what health looks like. That might mean we have to slow down. But it also means we're left in a position of great tension. We have to obey the authorities. God put them in place. And yet we don't hope in them. We seek to be good citizens, to make wise decisions when voting. But there's no politician and there's no political party that is able to fix what's broken in this world. And we mourn the fallenness and the brokenness of this world. And we pray for God to be merciful and to bring healing. And we seek to be good neighbors to those whom God has brought into our paths. But at the end of the day, our hope cannot be in any of these things that are being put out there as the hope. Our ultimate hope is not in face masks. It's not in politicians. It's not in ideologies. Our ultimate hope must be in Jesus. And that's why he uses this illustration. Buy these things from me. Do you catch what he's doing? He's basically saying everything that your city provides, I actually own the real version, not the fake version. He has the true gold. He has the true clothing. And he has the true eye salve, the true remedy, as it were. The point is we dare not seek our satisfaction, our security, our hope in anything other than him. I found myself thinking on this and coming to that old spiritual, give me Jesus, give me Jesus. You can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. I pray that that would be our anthem, church. That our hope would be in his name and in his coming. And as, the tone, uh, as one of my favorite uh, hymns says so well, friends, all other ground truly is sinking sand. So we must continue to build and fortify and come back to that rock, which is Christ. But we do need to recognize something here, that the first readers would have heard these verses from Jesus, and they would have been crushed. Because remember, they think that they're pretty much amazing. They think they're doing great. And so all of a sudden, Jesus shows up, and he doesn't commend them at all. He just doubly rebukes them. So they would have been shocked And so because of that, Jesus turns and explains why he's disciplining them, which brings us to discipline and the door. Look at verse 19 and 20 with me. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he, or and eat with him and he with me. So knowing these stern words would have rocked the first readers, Jesus explains why he's spoken so boldly. He disciplines those he loves. 
out of his love for those in this church, longing to see them repent, he calls them to be zealous and repent, to turn to him. He corrects them. Correction should always be towards healing, towards restoration, towards Jesus. And so that's what he seeks to do. I discipline all those whom I love. It's a repeated theme throughout the Bible. The Lord doesn't discipline you. He doesn't love you. And so that's what we see here from Jesus. But then in verse 20, we have this other famous Christianese phrase, which has often been used to speak of evangelism. It usually is spoken like this. Behold, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks. Will you let him in? Now, I can't see you, but go ahead, raise your hand if you've ever heard that before, used in that way. If you've ever used it before, you guys can talk about it after, after the service with your families or, or whoever might be there with you. It's a very common image used in Christian circles, even dating back for hundreds of years. But remember, friends, this is a letter to a church. So the imagery is not of Jesus standing outside some door of a heart. I mean, that you wouldn't even get heart from this context at all. The point is Jesus is standing outside the front door of the church. He's not there. Jesus is knocking saying, will anyone in this church let me in? There's no evangelistic plea. This is a plea of repentance. It flows from his discussion of discipline and rebuke. Jesus is saying, you, church, have expelled me from your presence. Won't somebody let me in the door? Would that anyone would allow me in? Would there be one person who would open the door? Now do you see, this is what Jesus is doing. He's calling them to go back to being a church as it is. So this demonstrates that there are many churches who gather, who sing, who read, who pray, who teach, but they're actually without Jesus. He's no longer in their midst unless they repent. And this idea actually gets played out in the book of Revelation itself. So I want to show you how this happens, is that those churches which lose their churchness, their true churchness, their true witness, they no longer have Jesus, I think is played out in this book. Flip over to Revelation 11. We'll look at the first four verses of Revelation 11. Depending on how you grew up, this might be another one of those passages that rings with all sorts of Christianese. So Revelation 11, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So, that you get all these numbers and this measuring of the city and the temple. This is why people get, come to this book and they get really confused or like, I don't know if I want to dig into this. But let me work it out this way. Many Christians down through the last couple hundred years at least have, have looked at these two witnesses and said, oh, it's two people, physical people, like Moses and Elijah or some other combination. And others have taken it other way. But, but probably in American Christianity, that's the most popular. It's just two people, maybe Moses and Elijah. However, did you catch what is said about the two witnesses? that they were not only two witnesses, they were two olive trees and two lampstands. Well, that imagery is Old Testament, the olive trees. It comes from Zechariah 4. And there's a prophecy, a vision where Zechariah sees two olive trees, like piping olive oil into this lampstand that is burning forever. And when Zechariah says, what's this supposed to mean? He's told, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So here too, the two olive trees represents the Holy Spirit's empowering the two witness. The Holy Spirit is constantly providing them with what they need to be witnesses. 
And the two witnesses are also called two lampstands. Now, lampstands has already been explained in this book. It began with the discussion of the seven lampstands that were said to be the seven churches. And Jesus was walking in the midst of them. So some commentators have noted, and I think rightly, that there's only two churches that have no rebuke. And so perhaps the imagery here in Revelation is that the two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, they're the two churches who continue to have the Holy Spirit feeding him his presence, that they are truly faithful witnesses. They're fueled and working and continuing and pressing on, regardless of the persecution that may come. And so Revelation goes on to show that only some remain true churches. And with that reality, it's worth asking, what are the marks of a true church? If, if many look like churches, but there's only some that will truly remain churches, what are the marks of a true church? Well, the reformers said that a true church was one where the gospel was rightly preached and the sacraments or ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper were rightly practiced. What the reformers meant by rightly practicing the ordinances actually included the necessity of membership and discipline. Here's why. The idea of being, uh, uh, the idea being that to continue to give someone the supper when they were living unrepentant sin was to wrongly administer the ordinances and hence to cease being a true church. Here's how John Calvin put it. If churches are well-ordered, they will not nurture the wicked in their bosom once they know that they are so addicted to their faults as to cherish them. The Lord has thus provided a timely remedy to stop such rotten members spreading their corruption through the entire body of the church. To this end, excommunication has been ordained. I bring this up because Laodicea, it seems, has allowed that rottenness to spread. So much so to where the one excommunicated is Jesus. Jesus himself stands outside the door and knocks. Will anyone let me in? Will there be anyone who will allow me to come back in, who will turn and repent? So it's a stunning image. It's not evangelism. But we also see this picture of a true church here and these witnesses in Revelation is that evangelism is not merely personal. Now we said before evangelism certainly is personal, but it's more than that. It's a picture of the entire church is the witness. How much greater witness can we bring together? And I have heard and seen so many wonderful ways this has played out in this church. Just as a, by way of an encouragement, I think of uh, Gabe and Mandy doing the game nights. And I've been there in game nights. And many TGC members are there loving each other, fellowshipping together. But then there's also unbelieving coworkers or neighbors. What a wonderful way to do evangelism together. That's how it should be done. I know of many community groups who've done the same thing. Invited neighbors or maybe coworkers or, or friends to come and see how Christians love one another. By the way, that is exactly what Jesus said about evangelism in John 17. They will know the truth by how you love one another. So as phase two begins, we long to see community groups gather and gather weekly uh, for hopefully community group or gather even to watch the service together. Uh, we acknowledge that some members at higher risk might want to be careful and, and be wise in those situations. But we have such an opportunity to love each other and to be a light, to be a witness in these areas. So pray for that to come soon, that we can move forward in this way and pray again that we would be evangelistic both individually and uh, corporately as well. Because the goal of our entire witness is to see many united to Christ, which is exactly what Jesus promises in our last point, for those who conquer. So look at verse 14 and then 21 and 22 with me. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And 21 22, 
the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So verse 14, we read that Jesus is the amen. That's the Hebrew word, amen, means truly, which Jesus himself explains here. I'm the amen. I am the true and faithful witness. But it's fascinating. There's only one verse in the Bible where God is said to be the amen. And that's Isaiah 65, 16, speaking clearly of what seems to be God the Father. Twice it says that he is the amen. And so here, Jesus is not only the amen, meaning he is God, but he is truly the faithful witness. He is the perfect witness to the Father. Because he who has seen him has seen the Father, as we said last week. But then Jesus goes on to say he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, this is not what the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, that Jesus is the first created being who then created all the things. No, as a matter of fact, this is drawing very closely from the language of Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Listen carefully to Paul's language here. Some of the most glorious language of Jesus in the Bible. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning the new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And we know this because the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He can't be less than God. He is truly God, but he's the firstborn of the new creation. The firstborn of the dead, experiencing that resurrection life, which all Christians will one day experience. And that experience of eternal resurrected life is exactly what Jesus goes on to promise in verse 21. So he says he is this. He is the amen, the true and faithful witness to God. And he's the true first faithful witness to the resurrection life. And yet all those who conquer, he will grant to them as well to sit with him. Here's in this, this experience of eternal resurrection life bound up with conquering and notice with union with Christ. That's the theological category here. He's able to grant this because he has conquered and sat down with the Father. So to those who conquer, they go and sit down with him. This is the same uh, thing we get in Paul's uh, second letter to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, if we endure with him, we will also reign with him. So this is the promise of future eternal union with Jesus. So now this is where we talk about the doctrine of salvation, and it has an already and not yet element to it. Because Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, it's one big long sentence, beautiful, one of my favorite sentences in the Bible. And he says that we were children of wrath, we were, we were alienated from him, we were, we were sin, sons and daughters of disobedience, led astray by the prince of the power of the world. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, God did three things. He made us alive with Christ, he raised us with Christ, and he seated us with Christ. That is, we are united to him now. When God regenerates you, he makes you alive. That is what he does. He unites you to Christ. 
That's a present reality. And it's played out in many, many ways in different Bible passages. But here in this text, it's talking about our future, consummated, perfect union with Christ. And C.S. Lewis illustrated it like this. He talked about the Trinity as being a dance. You see, the Trinity is so essential. As the Spurgeon quote at the beginning talked about, meditate on the glories of the triune God. Because the Trinity, Lewis says, is like a dance. Where the Father, for all eternity, has never stood still and allowed other people to orbit him. But rather, they have constantly been orbiting each other. And so the Father, for eternity past, has been encircling, dancing with the Son and the Spirit. Saying, oh no, look at the Son. Look at the Spirit. No, look at the Son. Look at the Spirit. And the Son, likewise. No, 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 the Father. No, the Spirit. And the Spirit, likewise. It's been an eternal dance. And what we picture here, what we are pictured for us here by Jesus, is that he says, for those who conquer, he'll bring you into the dance. That no longer will be outside in the sense of having to wonder. But instead, we will sit with him on his glorious throne. We will be brought into the dance. Not made gods, that's not the point. But we will be brought in to experience that eternal, perfect love of God. And what is stunning about this text is for those who receive the discipline of the Son, those who repent and believe in Him, trusting not in their ability to measure, not in using the world's standards, but Jesus' standards, that He brings us into the dance. He unites us with Him in eternity. And just as Jesus is one with the Father, so he makes us one with the Father, as he says in John 13 and John 17. And I don't know about you, but I find this to be the most incredible reality given our forced separation during this time. There's so much division and separation, but our promise from the risen Lord as we will be brought into perfect and eternal union with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Catch the irony, though, about how all this is made possible. This is possible because he conquered. Jesus makes union with Christ and God possible because he conquered. But friends, we must not forget how he conquered was by being made wretched and pitiable and poor and naked on the cross. Friends, he conquered by being crucified and he was crowned king by being crushed. So what a glorious promise we have at the end of this series. The crucified king says, for all those who have ears to hear, for all those who receive the discipline and instruction of the Lord, for those who repent and believe, for those who conquer by remaining and growing more faithful in their witness to Christ, the amen, the one who has conquered sin and death and hell says that we will sit with him and reign with him forever. Friends, I hope you long for that joyous day. And yet until that day, may we be faithful witnesses. Let's pray.